the quality of balance. I think sometimes of the, uh, I guess you'd call him a philosopher, J. Krishnamurti, who said something like, freedom comes from seeing what is true, not from our efforts to be free. Freedom comes from seeing what is true, not from our efforts to be free. I think of that in terms of balance because I think of creating the conditions for seeing what is true. One's effort, one's dedication, one's commitment, one's devotion, going toward creating those conditions, not seeking freedom as some kind of reified object, not trying to have an experience that we don't have and somehow be practicing discontent and dissatisfaction, but creating the conditions to see what is true and allowing the clarity of that vision, the um, kind of integrity of that vision to free us all by itself. Or another way, I think of saying the same thing in um, the Hindu devotional tradition is when they say, that the grace of God is coming upon us all of the time like a gentle rain falling, but we forget to cup our hands. So what do we need to do to receive, to experience, to create the conditions for that which we long for to become real? And I think of practice very much, meditation practice very much in that light. Instead of reaching out for insight, wisdom, catharsis, the great breakthrough experience, the fantastic kind of trophy so that you can go home and say, guess what happened to me? (laughs) Instead of grasping, trying to attain, to acquire, to get, we practice in a completely different way, which is to create the conditions for all of these good things to emerge. It's like in the practice of metta meditation. It's really just the same thing. If we are reaching out to manufacture or fabricate some conceptual state of love, this is what it should feel like, this is how it should look, this isn't good enough, I know I had a minute of love yesterday, you know, what happened to it? Now it's gone. You know, if we practice in that way, it's, it's really about attachment. It's about some kind of grasping. Whereas if we work in another way, which is very much in that sense of planting seeds, being with what is in a more loving way, aiming the heart, inclining the mind, seeing what happens, having a sense of adventure. It's a very different way to work. So I think of balance as one of the primary modes of creating those conditions for all good things to happen. It doesn't sound that exciting, but it's really very profound. We work with balance in all kinds of different ways, and it really is the key to bringing us to a place where insight can emerge, where love can emerge, and all of those different qualities.
Which also brings us to the very interesting and sometimes compelling issue of suffering. I can remember many years ago reading um, the New Yorker magazine because there was an article on Buddhism in it. And in the article, they said that according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. And I thought, oh, great, sign me up for that. You know, that sounds really good. But of course, it's not that the purpose of life is to suffer. In fact, I think it's interesting. I I don't believe in Buddhist teaching there is something innately redemptive about suffering. It's all about how we relate to it. And this is something I find fascinating. And we all know people who have suffered, I'm sure. And if they have emerged at all, it's been with a great deal of bitterness and isolation and sense of limitation and hopelessness. And others who have suffered a great deal sometimes and somehow seem to emerge with a sense of connection to others and a very genuine compassion and care who emerge with a sense of openness, inclusiveness, because they know that we're not so different in our vulnerability. So what happens for some people and not for others? Or what happens for us at some times and not at others? There's some way of relating in the midst of that difficulty or that pain or that constraint that helps free us rather than bind us further. So the purpose of life or the purpose of our meditation practice is not just to suffer and suffer and suffer and somehow confusing that with being heroic. It's to develop the particular kind of relationship to suffering and to joy and to neutrality that can free us. It's having the ability and developing a greater ability to be open, to be present, to be loving no matter what, whether it's in times of mild suffering or much greater suffering or times of great exhilaration and delight, and even those really kind of boring times that can just go by with us feeling numb or disconnected. So it's quite crucial to understand the sort of balances that are involved in that particular relationship that we're working with and we're working toward, deepening all of the time. Usually, of course, we find ourselves falling into extremes. One very common extreme is simply to get lost. Something arises in our experience, a thought, a feeling, a situation, and we just dive into it and we are subsumed by it. We hold on to it, we identify with it, it takes over who we are, and not only that, it takes over our idea of all that we will ever be. In Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, this tendency is called papancha. And I like that word a lot because I think it's like one of those words that sounds like what it means. 
papancha, it sounds like popcorn, right? It means proliferate, to proliferate. And one translation I heard of it once um, from one of Sayada Upandita's translators was the imperialistic tendency of mind, <laughs> where something arises and the whole world is taken over. That's papancha. Actually, one of my, my favorite stories of Papancha happened once when uh, Joseph and I were teaching somewhere, and we were just sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and somebody came in to the kitchen um, who'd been sitting, and he said to Joseph in a state of some distress, he said, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, what happened? And he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I'm so uptight and I've never been able to get close to people and it's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? <laughs> And it was very interesting for me, kind of watching them go back and forth and back and forth, you know. And Joseph would just keep pointing him back to, okay, this was your actual experience. This, in fact, is what was your direct experience. And he was just weaving these incredibly elaborate stories about who he was and all that he would ever be. The whole world had been taken over by the papancha. And so um, at one point, Joseph said to him, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? You know, it's painful enough to feel all of that tension in your jaw, but on top of that, tomorrow, and this is who I really am, and all of that assumption and conclusion and derision and everything that we are just adding on and adding on and adding on till the whole world is taken over. That's papancha. So sometimes in kind of meditation lingo, we say, Look for the add-ons. Are we just diving into the experience? Are we growing it and making it more elaborate and projecting it into tomorrow and creating an entire self-image sometimes around it? So that's one extreme. We all know that very well. The other extreme, the opposite, is a sense of rejection and hostility and shame and uh, fear about what has come up in our experience, as though we should have been able to control it, as though somehow we are responsible for the sheer arising of something. And it actually was one of my um, great early lessons in meditation practice. Uh, when I went to India, I was 18, and even though I knew that I was suffering a great deal, clearly, that's why I went, I wasn't very psychologically sophisticated. I didn't understand the sort of texture and the nature of, of the different things I was feeling. And so when I first looked inside, it was all shocking. I was just appalled. In fact, I, I was telling someone, uh, some of you the other day that I'm kind of famous amongst the community of people, the friends that I met then, for once having marched up to my first meditation teacher and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started to meditate. 
thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him, of course. And yet, of course, I was hugely angry. I just didn't know it. So it was all kind of disturbing to me to see um, the arising of all of these different feelings. And I was once working with another early teacher of mine, this man named Manindra, and I was in a state about something. And he said to me, why are you so upset about that thought that has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? You know, did you say at 7.45, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred? No. <laughs> but when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. That doesn't mean we need to be passive or feel victimized or helpless. How we relate to it is everything. But to imagine we should have been able to stop something from coming is a pretty big assumption, given the reality of what our experience is. And yet it's the one we make all of the time. And so something painful happens, we feel betrayed. We feel that we've betrayed ourselves often. How could I have let that come up? As though we could have stopped it. We feel shame, we feel fear all of which are part of that quality of aversion, of striking out. So that's the opposite extreme. And then there's the place in the middle, which isn't found from taking a little bit from one extreme and a little bit from the other extreme and kind of blending them together. But it's finding a whole new way of relating that is not falling into either one of those extremes, or if we have fallen, can recover which is really very important. That place in the middle is what we call mindfulness, which connects to what's going on. It knows what's going on. It's with what's going on without adding on that tendency to proliferate endlessly and without rejecting something as though we should be able to make it go away and as though it were our fault that it had come up to begin with. That's balance. It's a place in the middle. Insight grows from there. Love grows from there. Caring grows from there. Connection grows from there. That's our work, is to come back to that again and again and again. It's not passivity, but it's not our ordinary activity either. There's a, a quotation I've heard from James Joyce who was talking about art, how to look at art. And he said, if you hold it too close, it's like pornography. And if you stand too far away, it's like criticism. You know, that sense of pornography of where our agenda, our needs, our wanting become the most important thing. And too close, there's not enough of a relate. Too far away, there's not enough of a relationship. There's too much distance. It's like criticism. So he talks about a place in the middle, which he calls beholding. We want to look at art. We behold it. Not to see what we can get from it and not to stand too far back. And that is very much like the sense of, of mindfulness. I know Steve spoke about that quotation of the Buddhas uh, where he said, so beautifully, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So I really loved that from the very first time that I heard it. 
Because as soon as I heard it, I thought about myself sitting at home, minding my own business, perfectly content, and hearing a knock at the door. So I go to answer the door, and there's a visitor. It's one of the hindrances. It's restlessness or doubt or grasping or something like that. And so often, having done that, gotten up, opened the door, I see this visitor, and I say, Welcome home. It's all yours. It's like I forget who actually lives there. And many times, of course, we have the opposite reaction. We open the door, and there's greed or jealousy or one of those visitors. And we're frightened. We're upset. So we shut the door almost desperately, trying to make it go away or believe it never came, only to find that it doesn't really work that that very force which has come to visit will now come in the window or come down the chimney or something. It will make its presence known. So sometimes I think one of the great skills of meditation practice is knowing what to do when we open that door. It's a place of balance here too. If you say, welcome home, it's all yours, it will take over. And yet, if we try with that kind of desperation to make it go away or try to pretend it never came, it will also take over. So to be able to face all of those visitors and know, first of all, that they're visitors, they come and they go. In a way, they're not who we really are. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They're born out of conditions. To bring wisdom to that moment to bring awareness to that moment. Oh, I know what you are. I see you. This is what you are. And also compassion and also care is the kind of relationship where we can be free even if they come a lot, even if they come an awful lot, even if they come again, even if they come incessantly. It's okay. So we use that relationship of balance, of clarity, of presence, of compassion with all of these different forces because then we can see right into them and we can see in a way right through them. Sometimes we are really lost in trying to manipulate, trying to make things be a certain way. And what we really need to do to achieve that balance is just relax a little bit. I can remember when I, I first went to India to learn meditation, and um, as well as being in a lot of, of suffering, I also had a lot of sort of dramatic ideas of the, the sort of fantastic, fanciful, esoteric, magical, supernatural technique that I would be given that would clear my mind and ease all of my suffering right away. And I wandered around India for about three months looking for the kind of situation I felt I really needed, which I think was right. I think it was a good intuition. Because what I was looking for was something very practical, not philosophical or, or um, dogmatic, but some sense of here are the tools, this is how you use them. And, and you know, I finally... Uh, came to this intensive 10-day meditation retreat. 
um, never having meditated for one single second when I walked in the gates. And much to my chagrin, the very first instruction was, sit down and feel your breath. And I thought, this is stupid, you know? <laughs> I came all the way to India, you know? Like, where's the fantastic, special, exciting, magical technique? And then I thought, well, you know, I'm a beginner. I've never done this before. And here's this teacher. He's speaking publicly, so he's got to sort of say something. And I'll just do this really stupid thing for a day or two. And, um, you know, and then I'll have this great breakthrough experience, at which point it will be so obvious to everybody, including him, that he will take me aside into the special room. <laughs> And there he will impart the real teachings. You know, so that was January of 1971. And strange to say, when I go to sit in that particular lineage or that particular style of meditation, guess what? It's the same instruction. And so I once told that story and somebody said, well, maybe everybody else you started with has graduated, you know, and they've gone way beyond that, that kind of preliminary exercise and you're the only one who's been held back you know and is still told to watch your breath but of course that's not true but anyway the truth was that even though it was so simple it sounded so simple so simple that I was actually contemptuous of it it was not that easy to do because I found that I couldn't just be with one breath as soon as this breath was happening, I was leaning forward to get ready for the next one. And what I discovered was that really was like the mental posture of my life. I was very frightened. I was very guarded. I was very wary. I wanted to know what was going to happen next. I wanted to be ready for it. And a good deal of my early practice was settle back. Settle back. You're breathing anyway, I used to tell myself. You're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. I had so much performance anxiety about it. It was like, I'd never done it before. <laughs> so come back. Settle back. Let the breath come to you. It's a place of balance. And of course, we can be way far back where we're so disconnected that we couldn't care less what the breath feels like. We have to come forward a little bit. And we have to connect. We have to take an interest in things. This is like the, um, almost like the natural movement of practice. It's not very studied. It's not like you ask yourself a million times, am I out of balance? <laughs> you know, am I leaning forward? But we feel it after a while. We become sensitive to that. And in a very simple way, we come back. Or we come forward. And then we feel the rightness of that. And we all know what that feels like when we are in a state of some kind of balance. So that's one way of understanding it. Sometimes we are trying to wrest meaning out of our experience. We're trying to wring the last drop out of it. We're trying to break through the level we are experiencing something on to get to what we imagine is deeper. I did that for a long time, too. I had this idea 
in my practice about depth. And I kept thinking, my experience is not deep enough. I'm too much on the surface. This is too coarse. This is not refined enough. And so I kept trying to push more strongly into things to achieve that supposed depth and subtlety. I did that for a long time until I had the realization that that basically what I was practicing was dissatisfaction. I don't like what's going on. I want to make it into something else. But I, in fact, didn't know how to make it into something else. All I could do was push and push and push, and I never got what I wanted. My realization was that what I needed to be practicing was not having something happen that wasn't happening, which also wasn't working, but I needed to be practicing a greater continuity of awareness with what was happening. To be mindful, to be mindful, to be mindful of any old thing that was presenting itself, coarse or gross, unpleasant, unwelcome, or subtle, refined, whatever it was. It was actually through a greater continuity of awareness of anything that my practice would develop. So instead of trying to punch my way through to something that never happened, there was something I could do, which was apply greater and greater and greater continuity to the best of my ability. And continuity isn't a decision that we make, although it can be a strong intention. It has a lot to do with recovery. It has a lot to do with beginning again. It has a lot to do with not digressing into judgment when we realize that we've wandered. We save a lot of time, actually. We recapture a lot of energy when we can just start over. That's how continuity grows, as well as with a very strong intention. There's so many ways in which we try to make something happen where the energy we are applying is somehow inappropriate. That doesn't mean we don't need to apply any energy to work in a heartfelt way, genuinely, toward continuity, takes an enormous commitment. And even just that willingness to begin again and begin again and begin again and not get lost in discouragement and just to start over, it's a huge amount of energy but it's the right kind of energy and it's applied in the right direction. To somehow try to reach for something that's not there doesn't make it come. It just doesn't. So we have to pay attention as best we can. I know many of you have heard me or or others talk about uh, my experience in working with Saida Upandita, um, who's our Burmese meditation teacher, when he came to Barry in 1984, uh, and those of us, I think virtually all of us who were sitting with him, registered to sit with him for that course, had never met him at that time, but friends had gone there to Burma and said that he was a, a very great meditation master and we should bring him. So we brought him and began sitting under his guidance the day after he arrived, and that was sitting for three months. So that's a very intense thing to do, kind of turn yourself over to somebody like that, never having met them for such a long period of time, too. 
And as you can tell, I'm sure, from all of the stories, he turned out to be this fierce, intense, demanding teacher. And what I didn't know, besides that, was that he also tended to work with people uh, very individually. And so the kind of guidance you might be getting could often be different from the guidance someone else was getting. And he also had a sort of teaching methodology where he would often just say the same thing again and again and again and again, over and over, until something shifted inside of you. And then he would go on to something else. So we were seeing him six days a week for interviews, during which we were supposed to describe one sitting and one walking period from the previous 24 hours. So many of us would just take a few notes at the end of a sitting and at the end of a walking to have something to say. So I'd appear in his room with my little piece of paper, my sitting and my walking on it. And before I could read it, he would look at me and say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. And that was it. Let me out of the room. So I went and I sat as mindfully as I could, and I walked as mindfully as I could, and I really washed my face very mindfully. I felt the water in my hands. I felt the water in my face. I watched the whole activity of it. I'd come in the next day, and he'd say, tell me everything you experienced when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. Out. (gasps) So I added drinking a cup of tea to my very careful and mindful kind of experience. And then, you know, every day, it was a new thing. Tell me everything you noticed when you walked in the door. Nothing. Okay. And leaving, I felt the coldness and the hardness of the doorknob. And it was really, um, I quickly saw where things were going to go. And (laughs) in my mind, I really, really didn't like it. I called it the torment of continuity. (laughs) No, I thought, oh, God. But... In truth, the experience, not my projection about it, but the experience was really quite wonderful because first it it demanded everything of me. And you know how fulfilled we actually can feel when we're not holding back, when we are really putting ourselves out there. And yet it was in a way that was extremely balanced and interesting You know, that kind of dichotomy we can hold, that true meditation happens in a formal sitting session and everything else is sort of filler, it was gone. It was a long time before I got to describe a single sitting to him. Tell me what you experience when you take off your shoes. Tell me what you experience when you... Every day. And so everything clearly was as important as anything else and as important as anything that might happen in a formal sitting. There wasn't even time to judge myself in the normal way because if I was getting up from a sitting, that was important to pay attention to because that might be what he was asking me about. (laughs) So we work unstintingly, not holding anything back, not kind of half there, but in the right way, in the right direction. It's sort of reminiscent of you know, in the classic Buddhist teachings where he's talking about right effort and um, he's talking to a lute player so we can substitute any stringed instrument 
um, and is talking about not turning the string too tight nor too loose in order to get the right sound. We need a wholehearted effort, but not overreaching what actually is, because that's not effort anymore, that's grasping. We need to have that kind of balance to be as present as we can, to be willing to begin again and again and again, to try to be with everything that may arise and in the right way. In some uh, schools of Buddhism, they talk about observing the thoughts and feelings that come up in your experience, the thoughts that come up in your mind, as though you were quite an elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I really like that image because there's a certain sense of many strands coming together into balance. One is perspective. You know, there's wisdom, there's understanding, there's perspective. You see a two-year-old completely freaking out because their shovel is broken, and you know it's just a shovel. But you don't say that. (laughs) Because there's tenderness, there's care, there's compassion, there's love. There's all of that. There's the spaciousness, the openness of the perspective, that ability to let go, to not invest so solidly in that which must inevitably change. We've lived too long for that. But there's real care. There's real kindness at the same time. That's another way of understanding that balance. And really, almost every technique or tool or method that is employed in some way is about bringing us to that space where there's an open awareness, there's a a genuine connection, there's perspective, there's wisdom, and there's compassion. I was quoting Joseph also um, in one of my groups where, I don't know if he said this in the hall or not, but... uh, one of his kind of cute sort of newfound methods is when he suggests to people that uh, (laughs) you should pretend the thoughts that arise in your mind are arising in the mind of the person sitting behind you, you know, or next to you. It's actually an interesting technique because usually that frenzy of judgment, like, oh, no, you know, horrible thought, number 80, is replaced by, oh, poor guy, you know? <laughs> Look at you. Look at what you're thinking. That works. <laughs> and really, that's what all of those methods are designed to do. If we're in the habit of being way too far back, disconnected, not knowing what we feel, not being able to open to it, we work on coming forward. If we're way too far forward, trying to control, trying to anticipate, getting lost in papancha, work on settling back. And mindfulness somehow has the ability within it to do both. It's like alchemy in a way. To work with that particular quality of attention or awareness will allow us to come to that more natural balance. Often, you know, I think people 
say that they're, they think of themselves as being really lazy, you know, and they say, I can't concentrate, I'm not working hard enough, I'm, I'm not really good, and sometimes that's true, of course. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the times that's not true. A lot of the times we're trying too hard. Or we're trying with that edge of control. I've got to make this be a certain way. I can remember once I was sitting with one of my uh, Tibetan teachers named Sokni Rinpoche. And he did this little exercise. It was really quite interesting. He said, I don't know, maybe there were a hundred of us in the room, something like that. And he said, now I want you all to touch space. And I, like I think everyone else in the room, picked up. I picked up my finger and I started poking in the air, you know, like to touch space. And he laughed so hard. And I thought he was going to fall off his chair. He was just laughing and laughing. And, and then he said, you're already touching space. Space is touching you. And it was just one more example of that kind of reaching out to experience something that's already happening. (laughs) That doesn't need that sort of extra strain, that kind of fabrication, effort to manufacture something. It's already happening. So lots of ways we, we work with that. We see it all of the time in in being mindful. And we kind of almost watch the the natural adjustment of it. And there's so many ways in which balance is just threading its way through our understanding of what we need to do, where we need to be, the composure or the spaciousness or the presence that we need in any given moment. We need to have a pretty big aspiration, I think. We need to have a sense of possibility that's not so limited. You know, I'd like to work through this little petty annoyance or, you know, just do something kind of small. We need to have a pretty big sense of what is possible for us as human beings, which is, of course, why we we start off by the taking of refuges. Not just, you know, may I have a good day, or may I not, you know, fall asleep and off my chair in the meditation hall, but something bigger (laughs) than that as, as a standard that we hold to be possible for ourselves. It's like a vision with um, another one of my, my Tibetan teachers named Nyoshal Kenrinpoche, there's a very strong message that he gave us, which was basically, you know, to paraphrase, like, why is your aspiration, your sense of what's possible, your sense of what a human being can be like, why is it so small and petty and meager? Like, why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And some of what we confront in our move toward greater balance is that why not? You know, how do we define ourselves? How do we hold back? How do we judge ourselves? Can we let go of that? Can we see through the 
the nature of that, almost into its transparency. Can we not be held back by it, even if it arises? Can we have a really, really, really big sense of aspiration? And then there's the other side. Now, how do our dreams come true? How do we take a, a huge aspiration and make it real? Not to hold it as an ideal we judge ourselves by, but how do we bring it to life in this moment, in this moment, in this moment? That's the necessary balance, too. That means patience, which is not that common trait, really. Just as I think we live in a time where um, our sense of aspiration can be quite blunted and thwarted, we also live in a time where we don't often have the patience to undertake something, see it through, let it unfold. Like the, the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of life, things take time. They just do. When we plant a seed, it's almost like that is doing our work. Then we're doing our work. And we need to let nature, we need to let the course of things unfold to bring that seed to fruition. I often think of loving-kindness practice in that way, where it is so easy to do with a kind of um, what somebody once called uh, meta with an edge. You know, it's like, it's so easy to do with an agenda. Like, may you be happy tonight in these five ways. Because I've decided, you know, and to feel so badly when we're not sitting and are not engulfed in waves of what we call love or, or loving kindness or loving care. I think of metta practice, loving kindness practice, more than anything as one of planting seeds. Every time we say one of those phrases, knowing what they mean, which means that we've gathered our attention, we've gathered our energy behind one phrase. We're really there. We're inclining the mind in that direction. That's planting a seed, and that's our work. I can remember once doing loving-kindness practice in Burma, which is where I first did it um, kind of intensively or systematically, and I was doing walking meditation. I was having a hideous feeling of tension and, and stress, and uh, so much so that I just stopped walking, and I said to myself, okay, what's going on? And I realized that I was trying to do the practice and make it work instead of just do the practice and let it work. It sort of reminded me of what I, I sometimes call one of my great spiritual realizations, which is when I was in New York City checking into a hotel, and I was going up in the elevator and realized that I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms, and I had the thought, put it down. <laughs> the elevator will carry it. You know, so it was very similar to that. I was trying to do the practice and, and also have a result instead of just doing the practice and doing the practice and doing the practice and letting it do the heavy lifting, which is really what we need to do. Okay, so we gather our energy, we say a phrase. 
we do it again. Our minds wander to who knows where, we start over. We do it again. That's all we need to do. That's a lot to do. But usually we do a whole lot more. We do too much. We want too much. We expect too much. And we judge too much. So let it go as much as you can. And really just do the practice. It demands a kind of faith, certainly. But it's a faith that's verifiable, where we can see for ourselves what the, the results are of working in that way. And we see the nature of balance in loving-kindness itself. Because in many ways, a practice like loving-kindness is a practice of generosity. And we learn through doing it what it means to give a freely given gift. As compared to, may you be happy according to the ways I've decided you need to live and according to the timetable that I've set out. Or, may you be happy and you better get better. Because if you don't get better, then you know, I've wasted my metta on you or whatever it might be. And what does it mean to really give without seeking a result? It's not easy, but it's very freeing. That's actually the nature of what loving kindness is. That's why one reason it's such a challenge is because it's not relating according to very conventional ways is something very different. So we seek a place of balance, not just technically in terms of how we do the practice, but in our understanding. Can we have a sense of sufficiency, a sense of abundance within, so that we're doing a practice like that, not leaning forward, trying to make something happen, but giving for the sake of giving, allowing it to unfold. So in all of these ways and many, many more, this is what we're working with. We can call it um, equanimity, which we do sometimes. We can call it a balance of tranquility and energy, which we do sometimes. We can call it a balance of concentration and effort, which we also do sometimes. Whatever term we might use, this is really our goal. We don't need to supersede that as an idea of what we're trying to make happen. But we work constantly with that, with that understanding and with that development. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.